Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, let's take our Bibles up again this evening and we'll turn together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. These three verses are linked together in a very clever way that ought to catch our attention. Verse 16 tells us to rejoice evermore. The word evermore that is used there is the same that is found in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice always. And the word means to rejoice at all times, in every circumstance. Then verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. And again, you could take those two words without ceasing and say they mean the word pray at all times in every circumstance. And then verse 18 tells us in everything give thanks. In other words, we're to give thanks at all times in every circumstance. So we see that at all times, in every circumstance, we are to rejoice, we are to pray, and we are to give thanks. Using these three different terms, Paul is summarizing the Christian's responsibility at all times, in every circumstance. And so you see how these three things are clearly coming together in the words that are used. It's also worth noting this likely, uh, these verses are likely referring particularly to your public responsibility in public worship. More than likely, these verses are referring to the church gathering together. We're going to get to verse 19 and 20. We're going to deal with the subject of prophecy in the church. You've also got the issue in verse number 26, that you're to greet the brethren with a holy kiss. The epistle also, verse 27, is to be read unto all the holy brethren. In other words, all the language here seems to presuppose the church gathering together. And so it is likely the case that these three verses, to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks, has particular relevance to the church's public assemblies. They gather together in a spirit of joy, to pray together, and as they pray, to give thanks unto the Lord. But of course, if this is the church's collective responsibility, then each and every individual member, well, they've got to take these things on board. And the church doesn't rejoice unless every member comes with a joyful spirit in these public gatherings. And so in the next study, we'll take some time to think about how these things link together. But for tonight, I simply want to think about the verse where it tells us in verse 16 to rejoice evermore. And yes, if it's public and plural, and these, uh, the words are often plural here, they, they come to more than one person, but if it is public and plural, then it has to refer to the individual first and foremost. And so we're looking again once more at the subject of Christian joy. 
And it recurs so often in the New Testament that it's something we come to periodically. We can't help but coming back to it through a regular studying of the Word of the Lord. So let's begin with the concept of joy here. Again, just very beginning, let's get the very start of things. What does it mean to rejoice? What is Christian joy? Now, we are so conscious of our predisposition to sorrow and to sadness that we begin to qualify joy at the very beginning. It doesn't mean this. And so we begin to excuse ourselves in some degree by suggesting, well, this joy is not the same as happiness. And yes, there is a distinction to be made there. But at the same time, when you see the examples of joy in the New Testament, you shouldn't suggest that joy is consistent with sadness and moroseness. You think of the language of Luke 15 as the prodigal son returns and the father says, it is meet that we should make merry and be glad. That's the word for joy that's used there. And again, there is no sense in which this was a time of solemnity. It was a time of great rejoicing. And I would gladly say a time of great happiness. The same is also true when the Lord appears to disciples after the resurrection. John 20, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. You can imagine the exuberance of emotion they knew as they saw their risen Savior. It's also the case that when we meet around the throne in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19 tells us, let us be glad and rejoice. Again, this is a situation of exuberance, of great delight in what's happening on that occasion. So the prodigal family, if I can put it that way, the disciples in the resurrection of Christ, or ourselves when the Lord returns and we have that joy of the marriage, supper of the Lamb, all of these examples point to joy as being an emotion that involves gladness and happiness. It does not mean... It doesn't mean that joy can't exist with tears. I often point to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 6, where we're told the believers there are to rejoice in their inheritance, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And so the Bible does present a reality whereby we can know heaviness and sorrow at the same time as knowing joy. And so you get the sense is, uh, when we find ourselves in times of heaviness and manifold temptations, in those occasions particularly, we have the responsibility to work through the Scriptures to the point that we bring ourselves to a state of true joy in the Lord. And so the concept of joy, I do believe, refers to that emotion of gladness and spiritual happiness in the things of God. The second thing to note, though, is Paul's concern for their joy. Again, this is not just a verse that we find Paul mentioning here in the church in Thessalonica. He certainly says here, rejoice evermore. But he prays for the church in Rome, Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And I've referred already to the verse in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and just in case we miss it, and again I say rejoice, that emphasis of repetition. And so as 
a concern of Paul. It is therefore a revelation of the will of God. Again, I think we should see verse 18 where he says, this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. I think that does encompass all three of these exhortations. I think they're so closely linked together. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is the will of God. And so he's giving to us, he's presenting to us the will of the Lord. But Paul's concern is that this believer would know joy. That they would know these times of joy in their Christian experience. But when you think of 1 Thessalonians, there are things revealed in this letter that really underscore Paul's concern. Because there are things and circumstances that are potential hindrances to them knowing joy. And his burden is they would know joy in the recognition that there are things that they're encountering that may hinder their joy in the Lord. You go back to chapter 1. I'm just going to point some of these things out and you'll, you'll see very quickly how these things could indeed hinder their joy and also hinder our joy. Chapter 1, verse number 6, describing... Again, their initial encounter with the gospel over in Acts 15, and where Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And he's making that particular point that when they received the word, and there was a, a, that initial outburst of persecution, they still knew joy because the Holy Ghost gave them joy even in the midst of affliction. And so as believers living under the pressures of a fallen world, joy can be a challenge. Living as we do with sin all around us and an increasing hostility to the Word of God, we're going to find ourselves constrained in joy. And yet the Holy Ghost is able to triumph over such afflictions. And so you see there, uh, it's certainly implied in that opening chapter, is that external persecution and affliction could naturally hinder joy, but the Holy Ghost gives the triumph. You've also got the fact that in chapter 2, there are various enemies lined up against the gospel. And much of chapter 2 is Paul explaining his own ministry, uh, in response to those who were questioning his gentleness, his kindness, his faithfulness. Those things are all suggested in chapter 2. You get to verse number 14, and it says this, For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they of the Jews. They're, they're, they're living when enemies are lined up against them. As the Jews were suffering, so, so even those in Thessalonica were suffering for the gospel. And yet, verse number 18 tells us, we're off, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. You see the opposition? There's opposition in the world, there's even spiritual opposition against their faith. But yet Paul knows what is the triumph, verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye. Ye are our glory and joy. And so again we find Paul, he finds joy in the gospel realities, even in the midst of enemies lined up against the gospel. And so we're seeing that joy triumphs. Over in chapter 3, 
You see that Paul has a burden, verse number 9, for what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our gods. They're, they're rejoicing here in the believers and in their perseverance. Because verse number 3 of chapter 3, Paul expresses concern. He sends Timothy, verse 2, and then verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. But they rejoice because they're not moved. And so again, what I'm suggesting to you is that backsliding and apostasy in the church could hinder joy. Paul's concern for the believers, he's concerned they're moved or shaken by afflictions. But they're not. They're established, they're strengthened, and that brings joy. Chapter 4 presents to us the fact that there was sin in the church. There were those who are exhorted in verse number 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Sin in the church brings much sorrow to our hearts and may hinder our joy. Then chapter 4, verse number 13 refers to them sorrowing for those who are asleep, losing loved ones, lost ones who are lost, who pass away in the course of time. That brings sorrow. In the very church itself, there's doctrinal error. There's all manner of misunderstandings regarding the Lord's second coming. And so you, you put all this together. They're living in a climate where joy may be hindered. They're living in a fallen world. There are enemies lining up against the gospel. There's apostasy and backsliding in the church. There's sin in their lives and in the church. There's losing of loved ones. There's doctrinal error. That's just in this one church. All of these things that would come against us and perhaps hinder our joy. I'm simply showing you that in this church there were factors presented that make joy difficult. And yet Paul, in that very setting, gives the command that reflects his concern. In this, the apostle is reflecting the concern of God for our heart's health. You could almost imagine that Paul would come at the end of the letter and say, I know you're weeping all the time right now. I know things are very difficult in the church and in your lives. It's hard outside the church. It's hard inside the church. But in that very setting, a saying perhaps like this tonight, Paul comes and says, rejoice evermore. You see, we've got to understand that Paul's concern reflects God's concern that our Christian life is sincere and genuine within and not just externally. The Christian life can look very well, can look self-controlled, uh, can look externally all in order, but God's desires expressed through the Apostle Paul are that our emotions are also in the right place. Here we find a church perhaps struggling with joy, and is it not true that we all struggle with joy? That our heart's health is not what it ought to be. And God cares that you rejoice today no matter how many things would hinder your joy. No matter how many circumstances would be a restriction upon your joy. The command comes in that context. Paul's concern is expressed. Rejoice evermore. So that's something of the concept of joy. And then Paul's concern for their joy. And thirdly, please note the command for joy. 
Rejoice evermore. These three verses, they all come as imperatives, as commands. Now, it is clear, again, please help me understand this. It is clear that this joy is more than a transient happiness in, in circumstances. Paul, even in his own example in the New Testament, shows us that Christian joy rises above and prevails even in the context of trial and much pain. He suffered greatly. He prays. You think of 2 Corinthians, he prays for God to take away the thorn in the flesh, but that's not removed. He continues to suffer, but God gives him the grace that is sufficient. So Paul, Paul's idea of this command is, is not that we pretend that sorrow and sin isn't real. It's not some kind of Pollyanna uh, theology whereby you this idea that all is well in the world, we'll just sing and we'll dance and we'll skip away through life and just ignore the things that are real, genuine concerns and burdens of our souls. No, the, the true Christian experience is to find true joy even in the midst of these extreme challenges. Not ignoring them, not pretending they're not real. But it is still a command, and a command under inspiration. And therefore, it is a command that if we do not obey, we are guilty of sin. Joylessness is one of the acceptable Christian sins. Sins that we perhaps don't condemn or rebuke in the way that we ought to. Oh, it's okay to preach against drinking or adultery or smoking and those sort of things. But when you come to preach against joylessness, sometimes we're less keen to hear such a thing. Hence, people have a tendency to make excuses for disobedience. When it comes to this command, we can, we can muster the armies of excuses to excuse us from such an important imperative. You might say to me, well, you can't command an emotion. I can't help how I feel. You know, how can I rejoice when I don't feel like rejoicing? Well, of course, that excuse denies the fact that we are rational as well as emotional beings. Our emotions are governed by reason. And we often must act in a way that we don't feel like acting. And so we must act in our reason to produce joy. Now, you may not always feel on top of the world. I certainly don't always feel on top of the world. But while I may not always feel that way, I can always engage in Christian thoughtfulness to think through truth and seek to respond in joy. I can always do that. Yeah, I cannot govern the things outside my control, those circumstances that bring much sorrow and even tears. But what I can do is I can take my Bible each and every day and I can dig in the Word of God to find those things that properly produce Christian joy. And in the midst of my tears, I can rise to the heights of joy in the Lord. And so don't use the excuse you can't command an emotion. No, you can obey this command by using your reason and by using truth in the power of the Spirit of God to bring about joy in your soul. Others may say, and again, this is uh, again clearly not correct, they may suggest you can't command something which is the work of the Spirit. The, for the Spirit is joy, uh, and therefore the Spirit must produce joy, and if I don't have joy, it must be because the Spirit's not producing it. You see how people reason sometimes? It's essentially hyper-Calvinistic emotional misunderstanding. 
This idea that we are not responsible for the command of God, the Spirit produces it, but we're not responsible for it. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of holiness. God gives the commands, we obey the commands, and what God commands, He gives the grace to obey. Every command is impossible without the Spirit working in us, but we are still responsible to obey the command. And so the command comes, and we'll only obey the command by the power of the Spirit of God. But that doesn't mean the command's not real and genuine and that we're not responsible to obey it. We are. You know, as the man with the withered hand is told to stretch forth your hand, I'm like, I can't do that, but just do it. Stretch it forth and, oh, he can do it. And so the Bible tells us to rejoice. And as we engage in that obedience, I do believe the Lord by his Spirit will give us joy. The command. Well, finally, the continuity of joy. You see, the end of all of this, how do we understand all of this? Well, the clue to understanding this is found in the command itself. And I have preached on Christian joy many, many times. And I don't think I've really got to the bottom of this until the last couple of days. The word evermore or always is the clue to what the command means. The word means always. It means in every circumstance, at all times. And the only way that we can rejoice evermore at all times in every circumstance is by ensuring the cause of our joy, the reason for our joy, is unchanging. Anything else as a cause of joy will not enable us to obey this command. If we're to rejoice at all times in every circumstance, then the cause of our joy must be the same at all times in every circumstance. Does that make sense? Anything else is going to fall short of this command. It must be an unchanging cause of joy. Hence, we rejoice in the Lord. The unchanging faithfulness and truth of God. Of course, Paul tells us in Philippians that that joy is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, we're not told that here in Thessalonians. We're just told to rejoice evermore. But of course, Paul is consistent in his teaching. And the implication is that joy is found in the Lord. Now, that, that phrase, in the Lord, speaks to us of the cause of joy. Again, I might speak of, I rejoice in your success. You maybe you do well in examinations, young folks, and you, you come and say, I did this in my exam. I'll say, well, I rejoice in your success. The cause of my joy is your success. If you turn back briefly to Luke chapter 10, you'll see, again, that language being used even in our Bibles. Luke chapter 10 and the verse number 20. Again, this great time when the disciples have known much success in the Lord's work and they've seen accomplishments in their ministries and the Lord says to them, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now all I want you to see here is that he says, in this rejoice not. In other words, the fact the spirits are subject to you, don't make that the ground of your joy, but rather rejoice because of the unchanging reality that your names are written in heaven. But you see, the, when you look at those two sections, in this rejoice not, but rather rejoice because. In other words, in this is parallel to because. 
And so if it says rejoice in the Lord, it's essentially saying rejoice because of the Lord. That's the cause of our joy. There's a very helpful Old Testament text. It's Habakkuk chapter 3. Verses 17 through 19, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And you'll see what's taught here, Habakkuk chapter 3, and the verse number 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And that illustrates a point. Harvest is changeable. It may cause joy one year, but it may cause sorrow the next year when it fails. But do not rejoice in those things, but rather I will joy rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And so you see there again that helpful principle that the cause of our joy must be in the Lord. Now, Habakkuk chapter 3, along with the psalmist, connects our joy in the Lord with also our joy in God's salvation. And several psalms, our time is gone for tonight, but Psalm 35 verse 9 says this, My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. And thus the believer will find joy particularly in the consideration of Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in God and in God's salvation as it comes in the person of the Lord. You see, joy is found in the contemplation of our unchanging God, His unchanging compassion, mercy, grace, and love, particularly as revealed in Christ Jesus as He came into the world to save sinners. That's what brings great joy. And so we find our joy in our unchanging standing in the Lord. Mercy coming by way of an unchanging covenant a covenant sealed by the promise of God, by the oath of God, and by the blood of Christ. These unchanging realities, these things never change. Though harvest may feel, though health may feel, God's truth never feels. And our covenantal standing cannot feel. Christ's righteousness given to us cannot feel. It's an unchanging righteousness. Therefore, we rejoice in the fact that we are in the Lord in that sense. The fact that we've got an inheritance, that's unchanging. Remember I mentioned First Peter, wherein you rejoice. Well, what do they rejoice in? In an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven, an unchangeable inheritance. You see, our joy is found in the unchangeable blessings of God that come in the gospel. And so I think what you see in Thessalonians and in other portions is a necessity of pursuing joy in the things that will not change. In the truth of God and the blessings of the gospel. This is not natural. It does not come easily. But it comes by the work of the Spirit of God. And so please obey the command, depending upon the power of the Spirit. And may God indeed encourage our hearts in these things tonight for His name's sake.